Now, as we come to the scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, please never allow me, never allow us uh, to stop marveling at the fact that we have before us that which was breathed out through men by God himself. And thus we can trust it, thus we can believe it, thus we can put our whole um, destiny in it. And so, Father, I pray that even now you would prepare us to hear it, to trust it, to live it. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to First Peter in chapter 5. I want, to be, I want to begin reading, really, in the middle of verse 5 to the end of the chapter. First Peter in chapter 5, please. This is the word of the Lord. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who have called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now today I just want to take up this beginning piece that begins in the middle of verse 5 through verse 7. Let me again read it. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, it's clear, I think, as we read through that, what Peter's after. He's telling them that they're to be humble. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, not just some of you, but all of you. He's been talking to them about a number of things. He's been talking to them, uh, most particularly in the, in the opening verses of this chapter 5, about elders and their governance, if you will, of the church. And they're to be humble in their governing of the church because they know that they're under the chief shepherd who is Jesus. It isn't their church, it's the church that belongs to Jesus. And he is the shepherd, they're just the under-shepherds. And so, in humility then, not being better than anybody else, but in humility then, they're to govern, if you will, look after, oversee the life and ministry of the church. And then he talks to older men and how they're to submit really to I'm sorry, he talks to younger men and how they're to submit to, to older men. Um, uh, a bit of a word to younger men, probably. Younger men aren't known, at least I wasn't when I was younger, to, for my submissiveness. And so, you know, you have to know everything at some point in your life, and I think it's when you're young. Um, I know way less now than I used to. <clears throat> I often try to find... Uh, young men who've just been married, and I ask them about marriage, and I tell them, you know more now about marriage than you ever will. 
So I want to get that information as soon as I possibly can. Uh, but uh, so to be submissive to older men. But then he says, clothe yourselves with humility, because you see that nature of submissiveness, if you will, to voluntarily, in some sense, put ourselves under another. That that kind of submissiveness is is a is an aspect, an expression of humility. And so he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And then he says, humble yourselves uh, under the mighty hand of God. And so he's after our being humble. And he tells us the reason, at least in this particular section, why humility is important. He says humility is important because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you want to be the enemy of God, then don't be humble towards one another. If you want to be the enemy of God, don't humble yourselves under his mighty hand. But if you want his grace, it is his gift to you, his acceptance of you graciously through Jesus. If you want that, if you want this grace that will sustain you and help you, if you want that, then you need to be humble. So God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So clothe yourselves with humility, all of you, towards each other and, and also then humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Not only that, he says that for those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, God will actually, at the proper time, exalt you. So, humble yourselves under God, and he, at the proper time, will exalt you. And then he says that a blessing of this humility is that it is a knee-jerk reaction to cast our cares upon him because we know that he cares for us. So, humble yourselves, be humble. Why? God gives grace to the humble. Why? Because he'll exalt you. Why? Because this is consistent with casting your cares upon him. The proud never do that. So, that's where we're headed. Now, what is then this humility towards one another? You know, it's one thing, and we'll speak to this in a moment, when we're humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. There's one thing to be humble before God, but now he's saying, I want you to be humble before or towards one another. He's been talking about submission, and so he's in some sense saying, I want you to voluntarily understand yourself in such a way that you're willing to be under another, be willing to submit to another, be willing to serve one another. That's what he's after. Now, we, we see a, a definition of this humility towards one another, or at least the outworking of it. In Philippians in chapter 2, I read that previously. Um, Paul writes this. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, listen, if you've been blessed by being a Christian, then, then this is it. This is what comes, comes with that. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so, so he's saying, <clears throat> be humble. That is, don't be selfish in your ambition 
Don't be conceited in your own mind, in your own life. Selfish ambition means that, that, that everything must satisfy my goals, my desires, not anyone else's. To be conceited means I only do that which puffs me up, which makes me look good, which makes a name for myself. You see, the absence of anybody else in that decision-making process of one who is ambitious selfishly or is conceited. But, but rather, he says, humble yourselves. Let each of you look I'm sorry, but where am I? Uh, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. He's saying, humble yourself in such a way that you realize the significance of others. And even to allow this thought that they're even more significant than you. And, and don't only pursue your own interests, but also the interests of others. In other words, he's saying, don't be filled with, with pride. Now, the question is, how do we do that? Is this something God does for us, or is this something we do? And the answer, of course, is yes. Of course, it is something that, that God works in us. But, but Paul will later, just in this same chapter in Philippians in chapter 2, uh, say to them this. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to do and to will, for his, to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, yes, God is at work in you, producing humility, convincing you of all of this, working that in you. But now you see, as he works it in, you work it out. Engage with this. This isn't passive. This is active. The Christian life is never passive in the sense that what God works in, we engage with, we work out. And so when he gives faith to us as a gift, what happens? We exercise it because he gives it. We, we engage with that belief, that faith. We exercise it same way here. He works humility in us. And now he says, thus then clothe yourselves with humility. Humble yourselves. So this is active on our part, is humility. Of course, we know the great danger of pride. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in this little book, Mere Christianity, there's a chapter called The Great Sin. Let me read a bit. He says, Today I come to that part of the Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they're guilty of it themselves. And so he says, so this is it. I'm going to talk about the big one here. And the big one is one, he says, that, 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 that captures us all. And not only that, that it's one that we hate when we see it in other people, it just drives us crazy, but in which we're very unlikely to see it in ourselves. So I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or they can't keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they're cowards. But I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I've very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. 
There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault with which we are more unconscious of it in ourselves. The more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we've come to the center of it. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere, mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Because you see, pride says, I can do it. Pride says, I'm self-sufficient. Pride says, I'm self-dependent. Pride says, I'm the measure of everything. Pride says, everything revolves around me. He goes on. Does this seem to you an exaggeration? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or, or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else for being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. That's it, isn't it? It's, it's, it's that. It's that, that, that pride, you see, that causes us to push God aside, to ignore God. Now, that pride that causes us to see ourselves really as better than others. And it's fascinating in this account that I read earlier from the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus tells that parable of the, of the, of the Pharisee and and the tax collector, the Luke, begins by saying, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And we see ourselves so righteous above everyone else, then we begin to treat everyone else with contempt because no one's as good as we. And therefore, you so. You see, so, so he says, humble yourselves. Uh, therefore, humble yourselves. Toward, humble yourselves toward one another. And you see, this kind of humility is, is necessary for everything that Peter has been talking about and how Christians are supposed to engage with one another. You remember, we, we said that we're to love one another. 
Above all, to love one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. You see, to be forgiving, one must have a sense of humility. And the offense wasn't so great because it was against me. But rather, in humility, I identify with you that I'm a sinner too. And I've been forgiven, therefore, I forgive. And he says that the loves to practice hospitality, to be welcoming. Well, I've been welcomed. But if you're self-righteous, you say, the reason I've been welcomed is because I'm better than everybody else. Of course they welcome me. But no, 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 no. That isn't it at all. To serve. Not to be served, but to serve, to humble, to serve others. It's the very nature of it, you see. I'm saying, what's the, what's the real big deal about this about this humility? Well, the big deal, of course, about this humility is that God opposes those who are proud and he gives grace to the humble. You see, the humble one is like Jesus in that sense. Uh, when Paul writes again to this church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, he, he describes Jesus to us. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death. Death on a cross. That's, that's really it, isn't it? Think of Jesus. He was the Lord of glory. If anyone should have been served, it should have been him. But he said, I come not to be served, but to serve. And we have this picture of, of humility in the incarnation. We see Jesus, the Lord of glory, emptying himself, not of his deity, but of his right to glory. I mean, really, think about it. When Jesus was walking around, everybody should have fallen on their face before him and worshipped but he emptied himself of glory. Even prophet Isaiah, speaking of this one who was to come, said and there was nothing about him that we should be attracted to him at all. It wasn't, he wasn't tall, dark, and handsome. Might have been dark. Uh, but, but there wasn't anything about him that, that would have drawn people's attention to him. By the way that he was, by the way that he looked, he looked like everybody else. He was just a guy. That's humility. And then even further, to become a servant, and then even further, to be numbered with criminals. Even death on, death on a cross. And Peter says that's, that's what we're to do, you see. We're to humble ourselves. We see this the night that Jesus was betrayed, this, this clothing himself with humility. He did it by, first of all, taking off his outer garments. You remember, he was with his disciples. It was the night that he was betrayed. They were there. No one had washed anybody's feet because it was such a menial task. Only a servant slave would do that. And there was Jesus, the Lord of glory. And what did he do? He stripped himself down to his undergarments. He took a towel like a slave and he wrapped it around his waist, literally tying on humility. 
really putting on humility. When he put that on, that was humbling. That was saying, I'm a servant. I'm the slave of all. I'm underneath. I'm below all of you. I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter says, that's how we're to be to each other. That kind of humility towards one another. How do we get that? Well, notice this expression. Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore, if we're to clothe ourselves with all humility, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, that little expression, the mighty hand of God, is a wonderful one in the Old Testament. When it's used, it's most often used of God's mighty hand in delivering his people and rescuing his people. You have an opportunity to read through the book of Exodus. You'll find it various times. He was, they were brought out of their slavery by the mighty hand of God. Now, we say that's awesome. That's wonderful. But in a sense, it's also humbling. Because you realize that it took the mighty hand of God to rescue them took the mighty hand of God to rescue them. They were completely hopeless, completely helpless, slaves in Egypt. They couldn't get out. They were stuck there. Nothing they had would enable them to leave Egypt. Nothing they had would enable them to break the slavery. It took the mighty hand of God. That was humbling because you see at that moment in time, when they're being delivered, they began to realize who they were in the presence of God. And who God was, who they were. And that's, you see, what brings humility to see who we are in the presence of God. Because, you see, when we do that, the first thing that might come to mind is that we're simply creatures. We're simply creatures. We've been created by Him. We are not self-existent. We're not self-dependent. We're not self-sufficient. We are only because He is. That's humbling in that sense. No matter what else, we realize that we're creatures, that we're completely and utterly dependent upon God. If he says we live, we live. If he says we die, we die. If he says we eat, we eat. If he says we don't, we don't. We realize all of that. He is God. We are not. Not only that, but we realize that we're sinners when we're in the presence of God. That humbles us as well. You remember what happened to the prophet Isaiah when he was going into the temple and he had this great vision of who God is and great vision of God. So the train of his robe filled the temple. God was huge. Isaiah saw himself in relation to God. And what happened? He was humbled. He hit the ground. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. In other words, he says, look at this. Who am I in the presence of this one? And he recognized his own unholiness. He recognized his own sin. He recognized that he was going to die. Impurity in the presence of such purity. I remember Peter himself. There was a day in the life of Peter when Jesus was walking with him. They were out fishing. And, and you might remember Peter hadn't caught any fish. And he was a great fisherman, presumably. He hadn't caught any fish. <clears throat> and, and Jesus said, I'm going to go out with you. 
And, and he says, cast your nets in this direction. And they caught so many fish. The boat almost sunk. Remember Peter's reaction. It wasn't, let me sign you up as a business partner. It was, get away from me, because I'm a sinful man. He recognized who he was in the very presence of the glory of God. And so you see, when we're in the presence of God, we realize who we are. We realize we're sinners under the judgment of God. That doesn't make God an ogre. It makes him moral. That he judges that which is evil. But that's where we find ourselves. And we realize we have nothing in us in order to get out of that predicament. We have nothing in us that will enable us to get out of out from under the judgment of God. That's humbling, you see. And that's true for us all. It's just true for me. It's not true for the worst of us, as we might measure that. It's true for the best of us, as we measure that. It's true for all of us. But not only are we creatures who are sinners, we're also redeemed sinners. That is to say, that in the presence of God, as believers in Jesus, we've been graced in such a way that he's saved us, he's restored us to, to be joined with him, to be his children, adopted into his family. He declares us righteous, he forgives us, he brings us into his very family, his very presence. But we realize that that only happens because of Jesus, not because of us. That it was his grace. That's humbling. It's a great expression. First Corinthians in chapter four, verse seven. The apostles writing to this church that is just had by Paul their pride exposed. And he says to them this. He says, what do you have that you have not received? What do you have? That you've not received. Now, you, you, you're saying you're better than this group or better than that group or this or that or the other. But, but really, what do you have? All the way from your being and your breath and your life to your salvation in Christ to all that you have financially and materially and health-wise. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? That's humbling. You see, even though we are believers in Jesus, even though we've been redeemed, even though we've been forgiven, even though he declares us righteous, even though that we're adopted into his family, that's no feather in our caps. As Paul says, in whom do we boast? Though we boast in the Lord. He's our pride. And so even then, you see, and he's gifted us to do ministry. And he's caused some of us to, 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 to flourish in various ways. Again, no feather in our caps. Because even still, it's a gift from him. And we look to him. And we give him thanks. That's all humbling. And so you see, when we find ourselves in the presence of God, humility is simply a realistic assessment of who we are. It isn't a low self-esteem. It's a reasonable one. 
It just is reasonable. This is who I am. And I can admit that. And you can admit that. We should be able to admit that. Because you see, coming into the faith, what we do is that we admit that everything that we were and believed was wrong. Other than what God has revealed to us in the scripture and his spirit has worked in us. That's a pretty big wrong. If I'd been that wrong about that, why should I be trusted? Why should anybody exalt me? So you see, so Peter says, look, look, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This isn't an arbitrary thing, but understand the mighty hand of God. See yourself under the mighty hand of God, who he is, who you are, what you need, what he gives. And then that's humbling. And then you see what happens in response to that. Is that then I can be humble before you. And you can be humble before me. Because no matter what we look like, no matter what we've accomplished, and no matter anything about the measures that human beings use to measure status and stature, the truth of the matter is, when it all comes down to it, we're sinners saved by the grace of God. I know that about you. You know that about me. And so you see, I forgive because I've been forgiven. I welcome because I've been welcomed. I serve because he served me. And I haven't been forgiven because I deserve it. So I don't forgive you because you deserve it. You don't forgive me because I deserve it. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We didn't deserve it. By definition, forgiveness isn't deserved. I welcome because I've been welcomed. I haven't been welcomed because I'm awesome. I've been welcomed by Jesus. I'm sorry, I've been welcomed through Jesus into the very presence of God because of Jesus. So I welcome. And he served, I serve. I didn't deserve his giving of himself for me. You may not deserve my serving you. I may not deserve your serving me. But how can we withhold it in humility? So, so Peter says, listen, here's the fact of the matter. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, this pride, as Lewis put it, is the very essence of sin. It's that thing which causes me to oppose God. Uh, in another passage in this very brief chapter of which you think I probably read it all to you. Lewis writes, the Christians are right. It's pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or even unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It's enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. If you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. I'm sorry, let me read that again. In God... You come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, that is immeasurably superior to yourself. And therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. As long as you're proud. 
you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And so, he says, listen, this pride causes us to turn our gaze away from God and turn our gaze upon ourselves. Again, if I could just say this one more time, one more plug. That's why we worship one day in seven. Because it's so easy to turn our gaze from God to ourselves. So we got to stop one day in seven and rehearse all of this again. Hear the same thing again that we've been hearing, I've been hearing since I was a baby. Again and again. Why? Because it's so easy to turn our attention away. You might remember that when Moses was leading the people into the land of promise, very early on, uh, this is even in the the wilderness days, pre-wilderness days, um, he gave them this warning. Listen, Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good even in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. It's just so easy. We live in a world that reinforces that. That tells us everything revolves around you. That tells us, look what you've done. And and rewards us in various ways for that. And it's easy then to forget. And so we come to be reminded that isn't how it is. That it's a gift from God. And we're humbled by that. To then love and forgive and welcome and serve and all that. It's easy, you see. It's easy for us to forgive. God opposes the proud. There is enmity between God and the proud. Because the proud says to God, you are not God, I am. Uh, That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? Uh, uh, Satan... proud tempter who thought he was equal or better than God himself comes to destroy all that God had made. And he comes to Eve and you remember the temptation. Ultimately, you can be as God. You can be the one who determines good and evil. You can be the measure of all things. And she bit, literally, on that temptation. And what happened Humanity was turned upside down, thinking itself God. And the problem that we have in the world today, the problem we have everywhere, is the fact that if we all think we're God, then there's going to be a clash of the gods. If I have my kingdom and you have your kingdom, and they clash, there's going to be 
trouble, right? And so we need to realize that we're not God. We're creatures. We're sinners. We've come under the mighty hand of God. We're redeemed. And that humbles us, you see. And then this promise. God gives grace to the humble. Why is that true? It's true but just by the very nature of things. It's true because by definition, one who is humble says, I need. One who is humble says, I can't. One who is humble says, help me. One who is humble says, I don't trust in myself. One who is humble comes to God and says, I trust you. So by the very nature of things, in this humility, the humble one casts his, her cares upon God, knowing that God cares for them. So that's the very nature of it. The out, the manifestation, the expression of this humility is the casting of anxieties, the casting of cares upon God, knowing that he's the one who cares for them. That's the very point of it. You say, well, how does this work? Well, it works by you casting your cares upon him. That's how it works. It works by you praying. Uh, Paul, again, in Philippians, chapter 4, speaks in the same manner that Peter is speaking here. He writes this. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Peter says, cast your anxiety. How is it that we cannot be anxious about Everything. Do you ever find yourself anxious? Some of you are anxious now looking at your watches. I have a watch too. But, but this anxiety, you see. Do you ever find yourself anxious? Of course you do. About almost everything. Be honest. Be humble. Admit it. You see, that's the very point of humility. Humility admits it. Humility, uh, humility gets it. it. It says, yes, of course, I'm anxious about things. Peter's writing to a group of people. He calls exiles, just like us, in but not of the world. But he's also writing to people who are, who are faced with various kinds of trials, just like us. All kinds of trials that make us anxious, worry about things. Things that are bigger than we are whether it's illness or whether it's our jobs or whether it's the economy or whether it's our futures or whether it's our marriages or whether it's relationships with our children and raising them up or relationships with our parents and helping them or whatever that is, we look at the situation and we're really, really honest, humble. We say, this is bigger than I am. And what do you do with that? Well, he says, you go to God for grace. So you cast that upon him. And so you pray. He says, don't be anxious about anything but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We cast them upon Jesus. Here's a picture. When Jesus was entering into Jerusalem on what we call the triumphal entry, he was on a donkey. And there's a 
little expression that I think about from time to time when I'm praying. And it simply says this, that they cast their garments on the donkey. And I think about that in praying. I'm casting these things. I'm throwing them at Jesus. And sometimes it feels like I'm literally throwing them at him. That's the sense of it. I can't hold these. I've got to get rid of them. They're going to kill me if I hang on to them. I don't know what to do with them. And so I cast them. I throw them upon him. You know what Jesus says? He says, thank you. I care for you. I'll take these. And knowing that he'll take them. That, that's the piece of it, you see. Knowing that he'll take it and knowing that he cares is the piece of it. You know, if you give me your troubles, I can pray with you and I can help you and you might feel a little better after that knowing that I know and you know that I know and we all know and other friends know that's, that's important for us to do. We, we cast these cares out this way. But what really brings us ultimate peace is that the sovereign one the wise one, the one who loves us, knows. And we know that he knows. And we know that he said, cast these upon me. Because I really do care for you. And then Peter says, a day will come when we will be exalted. He says, at the proper time. I don't know when that time is. It's at least when Jesus returns. And he says, when he returns, all will be restored. You'll be confirmed. Yes, you belong to me. You'll be strengthened for all eternity. And not only that, you'll be established. It'll be permanent. So we know that really will come. How do we know it? Well... Because that's the very life of Jesus. He humbled himself. And the day came when he was exalted. That exaltation was that day that the father said, he's my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's the one. And now he's exalted that a place that I've always had for him. A day will come when we'll be exalted to that very place that God has for us as we reign and rule with Jesus on the new heavens in, in the new heavens and on the new earth. And we'll be exalted. And trust me now. Trust the scriptures. All will be well. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for me, for us, that we would in fact cast all of our cares upon you, knowing that you do indeed care for us. Humble us in whatever ways you need to work that in us. Cause us to be conscious about this humbling, the voluntarily, willingly, joyfully even. Submit ourselves to loving one another. Father, there are various difficulties that each of us faces. Uncertainties, fears, uh, troubles, difficulties, griefs. So even now, I trust that 
we're casting these before you. And that you'll take them. And you'll work in such a way that we'll know that you have them. And we may have peace. Father, in the world in which we live, through all kinds of hostilities and uncertainties and injustices, there are Christians who are being persecuted as always, but more publicized, it seems. There's troubles in our streets and in our cities. Because pride divides. I pray, Father, that your spirit would move upon our country and through the world in such a way that people would see who they are in your presence and See who Jesus is and trust in him. Father, we give you thanks for being with Caroline and Marietta Liebengood this past week. And in these days, we thank you for improvement in Kelly's lungs. And we pray that this improvement continues, that you will grant him good breathing and rest, and that it will not be too long before his strength is returned. And he can be at home. Father, we pray for Jonna, Jonna's father, Caesar, and his kidney transplant coming up this Tuesday. And Father, you would be with him and their family and that you would grace his life with healing. Father, for us as a church, even as we share life together, as we Forgive one another as we welcome, as we serve one another. I pray that you would cause us to do it in such a way that brings you glory. This I pray in Jesus' name.